in a world where Mad Lab Theater. What are you doing? Making the Mad Lab ad for Cinema Wheeler Tay. Oh, here's my other one. Susan thought it was just another day, and then she met Mad Lab. Why don't you just say that Mad Lab is the new works theater in downtown Columbus, featuring hilarious comedies, powerful dramas, improv with FFN, the annual Young Writers Festival, and the longest running shorts festival in central Ohio, Theater Roulette. That sounds pretty awesome, especially when I do it over the Star Wars theme. Star Wars is always a good choice. Mad Lab, the original. For more information, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or visit us at madlab.net. First time with two two timers, Yay! guys that have previously been on. <laughs> uh, they're two of our favorite guests, and uh, we're happy to have them here. They're uh, Phil Porter and Brendan Calvert. Yay! Hey, and it's doing? it's rare, and it's it, the the special thing is it's very odd to see us together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know it's. Uh, it's, it's been it's been ages, man. How you I, been? I, you know, I mean, we got to catch up after this. <laughs> I know, yeah. right? I'm it's, pretty sure they came in the same vehicle. <laughs> it's a rare occurrence that we got them here. You know, you know, they hate each other in real life too. That's amazing. We could get them in the same room. Right? So. Yeah. Exactly. There's a lot of animosity. Yeah. After yeah. the recording, Porter. <laughs> <laughs> well, we brought them both on today for a very specific reason because uh, we're going to cover uh, the David Lynch movie Blue Velvet from 1986. And why we brought Phil and Brendan on is because all five of us went to see it at the Gateway Film Center for its 30th anniversary mm-hmm. a few months ago. And we thought, well, I wanted to talk about this after seeing it, and who better than the people we saw it with. So thank you guys for coming on. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for having us back. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Thanks. Um, so Blue Velvet, uh, well, David Lynch in general is, like, he has a hardcore following. Like, you know, there's a certain directors that really just you know, capture like a cult following and he certainly has that. You know, Hitchcock Mm kind of has a broader following. But um, for me, I didn't really have much exposure to Lynch when I was a kid in the 80s because he wasn't really making movies that really appealed to me. But you always heard the name David Lynch, especially during the Mm -hmm. 90s when Twin Peaks was on television. Mm -hmm. Right. He's a genius. This is one of the best TV shows on the air. It was Ever. a water cooler thing, Laura Palmer, Laura Palmer, even though I'd never really Who watched... Who killed Laura Palmer? Yeah. Actually, turns out nobody did. Laura Palmer is a radio DJ here in the Columbus area. I can't remember the name, <laughs> I can't remember the name of the station, but it blew my mind one day. I'm driving home from work, and it's like, hey, I'm Laura Palmer. I literally like almost stopped the car. I was like, what? Yeah, I mean, yeah, weird that there's an analog of Laura Palmer in Columbus yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, if you haven't listened to Twin Peaks, we're not going to spoil who killed Laura Palmer. No, for you. we won't. 
Go. It's on Netflix, I think, still. Oh, yeah, so, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Who did? I never watched it. <laughs> I swear to God, I never watched the show. Go. If yeah. anybody wants to watch Twin Peaks with me, hit me up on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. I will never turn down a chance for Twin Peaks. Absolutely. I kind of view Blue Velvet as kind of the precursor to kind of the blueprint for what eventually became Twin Peaks and Mulholland Drive and all his later works. Like, I feel like, you know, his previous works were really extreme, like Eraserhead, and that had, like, a hardcore cult following. Yeah. But Blue Velvet feels like the first, what we know of David Lynch. It was the David Lynchian, David Lynch movie. Absolutely. It's when he hit his stride, which honestly worked for this movie and another movie, and then he kind of, you know, lost it. But you're right, absolutely. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was it was Eraserhead. Then he did the Elephant Man, mm-hmm. fantastic, he, yeah. fantastic. He did. I mean, he did some uh, two major studio movies. Did the Elephant Man, and then did Dune. Um, you know, which we we talked, which I it's it, that has uh, polarizing camps in it. Right. I am of the love that movie camp. Uh, you know, I saw it in high school in 1984. I uh, first date Whoa, in high school, dating. which yeah, <laughs> bad, bad idea because it was the girl and she was actually a cheerleader too. And I'm like, oh, no. oh yeah, just let her know you're a nerd right yeah. then and there. You know? Quick question: When you saw Dune in the movie theater, did they hand out the glossary? No, they did not. I got when I saw it. I was 84 as well in the movie theater. I was, I was 10. Yeah, and <laughs> was 10. Uh, they were handing out glossaries. <laughs> To like explain wow. what these words were, all these made up words from Dune, and you just went, huh? Interesting. You were and ten years old. You went to see Dune at ten. Yep. <laughs> wow, <laughs> interesting choice. I read the book when I was ten. Oh, there you go. You know, an interesting uh, tidbit on that is that he uh, Lynch was offered a chance to direct Return of the Jedi by Lucas yeah, around really? that time, and he turned it down, saying, "Well, this is really your vision." Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine what Lynch would have done. Oh my God! Oh, <laughs> Return of the Jedi. I think that was an absolutely smart move on his part. Oh, it's I true. Agree. It was yeah. a George Lucas vision. Jo- Lynch had nothing. The Java scene would be exactly the same. Yeah. Now, actually, the Java scene would probably have something to do with the, some Roy Orbison in the background. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, maybe he lip syncs to Pretty Woman yes. or something. I don't know. Please, I would have loved that. We'll throw Dennis Hopper into that dungeon too. <laughs> you know. But getting back on track, I do agree with you, and I actually wrote down myself. I do feel like this movie was the start of Lynch finding his niche and his style. You know, this movie yeah. was so stylized, you instantly see it, and you're like, this is a David Lynch movie. Compared to things like Eraserhead, where it looks more like a student film, this is really, um, I think he hit his mark, and he realized, okay, this is this is how I'm going to make movies. I wanted to kind of touch base mm-hmm. with, with what you said, Tony, too, because I know that you're a huge admirer of, of Lynch's. And I, I was am. wondering, like, how did you first get exposed to him? What drew you into him? And also with, with Brendan and Phil as well, their takes. But well, let's start with Tony. it's interesting because I really was not exposed to David Lynch until about a year ago, actually. Um, so I'd heard a lot of people talk about Twin Peaks, and almost anyone that I've talked to about it has been. Tony, you know, he said, Tony, you need to see it. You're going to love it. It's right up your alley. It's your kind of thing. It's vintagey, you know. Um, but I still don't have cable, and I haven't had cable for a very long time. And anyway, I decided um, about a year or so ago when I got into watching Netflix, I just was looking around, and I saw it on Netflix, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to check this out. And I watched the pilot episode, and I was instantly hooked. I just fell in love with it. Um... And I think for anyone out there who's never seen Twin Peaks, watch the pilot. If you don't like it, 
then you won't like Twin Peaks. If you love the pilot, you're going to love the series. But I just fell in love with it. And David Lynch, and I just got so interested in him as a director and as a creative person. And I wanted to learn more about him and see some of his different things. And so from, you know, this time last year to now, I've seen just about all of his movies, um, including Blue Velvet. And I don't know. I just, there's something about him that to me is very captivating. I think he's a very honest filmmaker. I love the fact that he's not afraid to be abstract and that he really hones that and honors that. And then he also recognizes that, you know, as he says, life is strange. And it really is. There are so many things in this life that we don't understand. And there are many horrible things in this life that aren't brought to light. And I think it's really admirable that David Lynch is kind of an advocate for, for exposing us to those kinds of things and taking us on these journeys with him. Um, and one of the things I love so much about Twin Peaks, which also sort of spills over into Blue Velvet, is the fact that David Lynch takes you into his world. He creates these realities, these whether it's a town like Twin Peaks or a storyline like what's in Blue Velvet, and you just get so reeled in and you, you just, I don't know, become a part of it. And it's exciting and scary and frightening and all of those other kind of emotions that you could think of. Yeah, I mean, I don't have the same exposure as you do with Lynch, but, uh, you know, I've become an admirer over the years. And actually, I never watched Twin Peaks, oddly enough. I've watched a lot of television. John, I've been telling you for how many I know, I, I have to get on that. I have not watched Twin Peaks either. Yeah. <laughs> what? What? I, I watched a couple episodes <clears throat> in the 90s, and it just, but I didn't, uh, didn't get into it at the time, and I just haven't really gotten back to that show. Well, I think you the need first, to before next year. Yeah, the first season <laughs> for me, I love that first like eight episodes yeah. of Twin Peaks. And then somewhere, when you finally started to realize that he's not going anywhere with this, is where I kind of lost interest. Because especially back then, being a teenager, I, I wanted explanations for things. I wanted you to like closed off narratives I wanted endings and he was not into that what actually happened that's not necessarily true what happened was David Lynch um, did not want to expose who actually killed Laura Palmer he wanted to keep that mystery and that suspense and keep building a stronger storyline and then in the second season ABC essentially demanded that they say who the killer is and then after that the series subsequently went downhill and then ended up getting off of the air I think as a result of that but yeah, the first season, which I think is about eight or ten episodes, yeah. yes. is amazing. Um, unfortunately, um, I think partly to do with NBC's influence, the second season is not maybe as strong as it was intentionally made to be because they had to say who the killer was and then people lost interest. They are Now they found out who the killer was, we don't need to see anything else. And the end of Twin Peaks to this day, 20 some odd years later, 25. still pisses me off. I know. Yeah. It's yeah, a cliffhanger. It's big ridiculous. Time. Yeah. My only exposure, and I think it's with, with 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 Phil, is like it's mostly been because I was a film guy in college. Like yeah. Lynch's movies would always come up in these lists. Like you have to check out Blue Velvet. You have to see Eraserhead. These are like movies yeah. that would always pop up. You don't have to see Eraserhead. <laughs> <laughs> you absolutely <laughs> don't. <laughs> you do not. You do not right. have to watch Eraserhead. Stare at a wall for an hour and a half. Yeah. It's good to know. Right. Yeah. It's it a makes, yeah. I mean, I know Brennan is a, is a completist uh, as far as that kind of thing, but I'm telling you right now, and to be quite honest, it wasn't until recently that I saw it on Hulu, and I hadn't I hadn't watched it, and I watched it and went, 
My God, I did not need to watch that. That is a piece of shit. Yeah. And it's, it, it was it's been touted for years by all kinds of uh, movie nerds that I know and all kinds of pretentious dudes I know yeah. of how awesome it was. And I was like, that was trash. Well, you know, I agree. I and mean, that's very, you know, weird for me to say because I, I really admire and respect David Lynch's work and I like his mind. I like the way that he thinks and how he expresses his thoughts or his visions with us. But yeah, Eraserhead, even I struggled to get through that, which says a lot. Mm-hmm. Because I, I'm all about being abstract. I love anything that's abstract as long as it has a sense of purpose and a sense right. of meaning. I'm all about finding the meaning in things. I love you know, juxtapositions or things, hidden details and reasons for why this is specifically just the way it is because there's a deeper or broader meaning. But Eraserhead, I just, there was none of that. It just was like a freakish kind of nightmare. Not even like a nightmare, but almost like this freakish reality. Like, Well, the thing I I think he took, I I think what he did in Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks is he had those abstract things, but they weren't the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Like they were just like, he'd throw them in there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he's more of an artist than a filmmaker. And actually, having watched this, we, we recently, yeah. you know, a couple months ago, saw Blue Velvet, and I yeah. hadn't seen it in a while, mm-hmm. yeah. And but then just watched it again, and I'm watching it going, <clears throat> a lot of this doesn't, and, and, you know, being an avid movie watcher, a lot of this doesn't link up, yeah. a lot of this doesn't make sense, none of this is really, a lot of it's not coming from a real place. The entire mystery that's going on. The well-dressed man who is actually Frank Booth, uh, uh, played by Dennis Hopper. And that whole storyline, the whole mystery thing, it's never solved. Why, why, is, why, is, you know, why, is, he, why is he dressed as another man? Why is he meeting with the cop? Why is all this going on? It was never, it was never resolved. It never made any sense, but I think it was just kind of an homage to kind of like he wanted to do kind of this 50s... Hardy Boys type of mystery thing, adding it to mm-hmm. and, and 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 underscoring what his David Lynchian mm-hmm. kind of bizarre kind of stuff, like giving the images of the picket fence and the fire truck and all that stuff, and and Laura Dern's first, you know, we first see her and you know she walks into the frame out of the shadows. I mean, that's straight out of a forties movie, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's he likes to give you looks and snippets of stuff. And it, it doesn't matter. I, I honestly think it, the story doesn't matter to him so much. He wants to kind of give you something really fun. Not fun, but something to watch and something to experience. Well, it's, some of the purpose for in this movie with starting off with the, the uh, original Blue Velvet song by Bobby Vinton. And it's very 50s and poppy and feels very friendly and nice. And then the picket fence and the firemen and everything. And the blue, blue sky and everything being sort of... Um, Soda poppy, if you will. That was David David Lynch's idea behind that was to to say, hey, this is how things look on the surface. Yeah. Everything's happy and pretty and nice, but then when you get down into the nitty gritty of things, whether it be the town of Lumberton, it's really a dark and dirty place, much like the real world. Right. You know, I mean, people live secret lives all the time. I mean, for all you guys know, I could be a psycho killer. You know, I've got. Right. Pink and white furniture, and There's my a- house looks like a dollhouse, but I could be a psycho killer. <laughs> and that's the cool thing. Like, that's one of the things I love so much about David Lynch. And I think that's what he was trying to do. Um, I, 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 I agree. Movies. There's an ugliness yeah. 
underneath that. Beautiful depravity is the only thing that I... Right. I mean, that was a key word. Well, yeah. And it's yeah. funny that you said the Hardy Boys thing, because one time David Lynch described this movie as the Hardy Boys go to hell. Yeah. Well, it's just so... It, yeah. so the, the Especially the well-dressed man. That is... I You know, I read a couple Hardy Boys books when I was a kid, and it's a, that exact kind of thing that, that, that just kind of brings you into that thing. I mean, it, it definitely... It, that always always just drew me back to that thing of like we're solving a mystery here and you know and there the, the scenes that, that that he's doing the Kyle McLaughlin's doing with Laura Dern in the beginning is is it's very it's all very innocent it's all mm-hmm. that very but it's that whole ugliness underneath of you know I'm going ahead of my notes but I'm just going to yeah, do it anyway yeah. I'm sorry yeah, but no, uh, that's fine. Um, but it's the whole dichotomy of like there's two you know there is uh, you know there there are two Dorothy Valens um, you know. She is this mother and the singer and everything, but you know, and she's but she she doesn't want to be uh, tortured by Frank Booth. But then again, she does. I think you know. I they talk about how she he's holding her husband, you know, and her child, so he will she will continue this sexual relationship with him. But I think you know, in my opinion, she started that she pursued that relationship in the beginning. That's how I you know. But she doesn't want it. But she does want it, and she continues it. With Jeffrey Beaumont, uh, Kyle McLaughlin, the same way. Frank Booth is the same thing. There's a dichotomy with him. He didn't start out that way. Um, you know, there, there's there's something underneath with him that he does not always become this. You know, this violent. But there's, but he's also the well dressed man, and there's other things going on with him. But Kyle McLaughlin, the same way. He's this really nice, kind of nerdy college kid, but underneath he is with who's in love with 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 Laura Dern. But then again, he's also carrying on this really sick like sexual life. relationship yeah. with uh, with with Dorothy Valens, and it's just it's that whole thing of showing you know this this the two side. Everybody's kind of got that second side and a real ugliness underneath, mm-hmm. and that's supposedly the real person. And yeah. David Lynch's world, that is the real person, right? You know, if you're a nice guy on on, on the surface, then you're lying, you right? Know? I actually took it as. He forced her into the relationship, mm-hmm. and in doing yeah. the relationship, she found out she liked it. Kind of like she forced Jeffrey into doing it, right. and yeah. then he found out he liked it, and it freaked him the fuck out. And he's so well, tortured by you know, everything I in this really, whole thing. I don't really know, because I think that, and I'm a woman, okay, fellas, so I can attest to how women think and how women feel and how women act. I think that she was forced into the relationship. This guy, Frank Booth, obviously has a very unhealthy obsession with her mm-hmm. to the point that he's dangerous. He, you know, took her son and her husband and it turns out that's whose ear that's in the um, field is yeah. the ear of her husband. So he's violently torturing her family as well as raping and torturing her. Um, I think that at this point, when we first see Dorothy Valens uh, in her apartment when she's removing the wig and taking the makeup and stuff off, we're really seeing her for who she is and that is a broken depressed completely all no sense of integrity or self-respect woman and so i think when you get to that point as a human if you don't value and respect yourself then you certainly can't value and respect other people and i think that's why she acts the way that she does with jeffrey i don't sense that she is malicious and i don't sense that she's out to hurt him i think she's so broken and sees the sense of goodness in him and she's just so hungry for care and you know and for someone to just feel safe you know for her to feel safe and I think she felt safe with Jeffrey I do think though that Jeffrey as a teenage boy was kind of 
lost in his perversions. I think he, to some degree, um, I don't want to say that he took advantage of Dorothy because I think every person is capable of making their own decisions, but I do think he saw a very broken woman and he was intrigued by her, he was attracted by her, and I think maybe he um, took advantage of the situation just like she did. And that's why they became lovers, and I think he wanted to explore that world. You know, I don't necessarily think she forced him into it. I think it was something that, because he kept going back. Remember, right. Laura Dern said, you're yeah. going back again? He wanted that. Um, there was something in that right. that was exciting for that's, him, too. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think there's something underneath the show. But that's show. humans. Right. That's us. That's, that's such a humanistic thing. I mean, even though we all want to be good people and... You know, we wear nice clothes and we do our hair and this is not underneath us. There's all that, there's a darkness. There's a sense of us wanting to sin, doing things that we shouldn't do, being in relationships we shouldn't be in. And I think that's a really humanistic thing. Well, I, I think your point is is kind of like we were talking earlier, like the, the mystery isn't solved. But I think Lynch is not so much concerned. I think the mystery is peppering that he brings into the mm-hmm. film. Yeah. It's really more the journey of Jeffrey going through all these stages yeah. to show like there's this underbelly in Lumberton. Like you yes. see this... It's You're like exactly right. I could I, I could describe this as like Ozzy and Harriet go to the Warhol factory. That's kind of how I describe this right. movie. You know, that's kind of the tone they're going for, and that's never been more. Um, nothing in this movie highlights that phrase as much as when they go into Dean Stockwell's house because it's oh, like yeah. a whole new world. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. it's just weirdness. It's not even not just the murder and rape or whatever yeah. else happens in this movie. There's just a general weirdness of like this is this is this is a. Counterculture. It's an alternate society here. Yeah. Everything's kind of warped. I don't know. Like you've always, they compare to like uh, if you go into somebody's house that you've never been to before, and there's always this weird vibe, and you're like, I don't fit in comfortably. Right. Yeah. There's something off about this. Uh-huh. And I think Lynch brilliantly captures yeah. that feeling. It's a lot house. of caricatures, I guess. Yeah. I, yeah. Watching yeah. this again, I don't think anything is because when I was first I watching it again, I was like, okay, so I'm, I want to know where how Frank Booth got to where he was. Yeah. And I was trying to think of like, so, you know, once the path he went down and got to get to where he is right now doing what he's doing <clears throat> and comparing it a little bit to Harvey Keitel mm-hmm. and Bad Lieutenant. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I just kind of realized it was like, it doesn't matter because it's not, I think with, with, with Harvey Keitel's character in that movie, it was, there's, it, it, there is a little bit of, it's based in something real. Mm-hmm. Once again, it's a caricature that you're not, I mean, everything they say. They were in a very nice suburban neighborhood. Well, don't go past Lincoln, which is right down the street from their nice neighborhood yeah. into the bad neighborhood. And you even tell that they're transitioning because as soon as they walk into onto Lincoln, there's the guys in the 55 Chevy mm-hmm. talking bad to Laura Dern. You know, the whole thing kind of turns on its ear, you know. And, uh, you know, that kind of that – I love that just kind of that feel of, of, mm-hmm. of bringing it back to – once again, old time stuff where this is like the bad guys would be driving this hot rod and <coughs> yelling at girls outside the car, you know, and just, you know, but it makes it very defined, you know, yeah. almost it's cartoonish. Also, yeah. It's also interesting though, too, because if you think about it, Laura Dern sitting in the same car with a guy who th- she thinks she knows, but really she knows nothing about. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just like all of us, you know, it's, it's like that old adage, you don't know someone until you live with them. You know, it's true. Mm-hmm. It, dawns on me while listening to all this that it kind of is like Lynch's idea of a fractured fairy tale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I mean, he's kind of got this thing going on in this movie, kind of like Wild at Heart is definitely a fractured fairy tale. Oh, yeah. But yeah. this kind of like you have the the whole thing where you say you don't know where he just kind of is there just because Frank Booth 
is, I mean, just to serve the purpose of... Mm-hmm. So, therefore, it's kind of like all your other fairy tale motifs where the bad guys, there's no reason why they're bad. They just are. They just are. Yeah. yeah. You know? And there's no reason why this is this way. He it represents evil. He represents yes. evil. He's not a real person. I, you know, he'd say, but he's not... Yeah, but he just... He's, he's definitely the representative of... Okay. I would say there's a layer though to that. There is a pathos to Frank Booth. I think Hopper probably brings that to his performance because when he's watching yeah. Dorothy in the nightclub, there in one scene, he's crying. It's like a Universal monster mm-hmm. movie yeah. where there is a pathos with the monster. Like even though he does those horrible, repugnant things, there's a sadness there. Like maybe right. he, maybe even a self-loathing with Frank Booth. Like he knows all of the oh, horrible. Yeah. Absolutely, because he probably looks at her and sees it. Because at that point she's made up, so she physically on the outside, on the surface, looks beautiful. And she's singing, which singing is such a vulnerable thing. You know, you're really showing a different side of yourself. And I think it takes a lot of courage to get up and sing, mm-hmm. especially if you're not the strongest of singers. And, yeah, I think when he's sitting there looking at her, he's probably doing some reflecting, thinking this is a really nice lady and I've ruined her life, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, which, well, I don't which think probably, he thinks he ruined her life, though, does he? Does no. he think, like, he no. probably thinks he improved well, her life. Well, here's what I, well, vision. I don't think I he mean, cares, honestly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but, but there is something there because a, gr- a man wouldn't just cry. He's thinking he's at a certain level of lowness well, she, to she make makes, him cry, yeah. and and it could be because of her. It could also she makes be, him feel human. I think is what it is. She makes him feel which, something that maybe he hasn't felt in a long which, time. In that turn, he probably does feel slightly guilty, but he isn't going to act on that guilt because he is so committed to wanting this woman that he's going to do anything he can to get her. It isn't gonna. It's not going to stop him. You know what I mean? Right. Even though he may feel that and he might have a thought, hey, what I'm doing is wrong, ultimately, yeah. it isn't going to stop a person like he that. He has a love-hate relationship with her singing that song. Yeah. Because at the when he calls mm-hmm. on the phone, she says, well, I like singing that song. That's mm-hmm. why I sang it. And then when you yeah. see him in the club, yeah, he's bawling and he's wiping right. his tears. But again, after that, he, the, the velvet. He treats her like an, an object after that. Mm-hmm. Yes, he does. And he refers to her as tits. Yes. He's, yeah. he's like, I can't even, you know, hey, tits needs this. It's like he doesn't, he, he will not recognize her as a human being. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's she's an object. You well, know, he's obviously. Because he's trying to take power. Yeah. You know? yeah, well, he's very psychologically sick. That's clear. Well, yeah. I think you he's know, a he former just, dentist. And that's why he gets all that. <laughs> <laughs> he's a failed dentist <laughs> that turns out like a crime, but he has. Um, just, he, it's laughing gas he's using, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. I still would love to see what it was because uh, Lynch originally wanted that to be helium. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> you just go, what? No, and Hopper said, and it may not even be nitrous, I can't remember, yeah. but it's something along those lines. Because Hopper obviously did yeah. everything, did every drug there was to do. Yeah. It's yeah. like, no, you're not going to get high like that off of this. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and but yeah, so Hopper was like, no, we're going to change it to this. What I'm doing yeah, is this. Yeah, because what yeah. It, that, particular, that. that particular gas mm-hmm. gave like a temporary distortion of the mind. Yeah. I don't remember what it was called, but it, it affected your thinking in the way that like your mind. Um, and that's why every time Frank Booth takes... You know, in, inhales that gas. He always does something really rash, yeah, and, and bad. Well, I think it's a visually stunning thing oh, that you're yeah. seeing. Well, it's yeah. cinematic because you're watching this guy put his mask on slowly, and just, you know, he's, everything raises, and then you see this manic, like 
Mm-hmm. Probably up there with a Clockwork Orange, the rape scene on the Clockwork right, Orange. Exactly. It's like that same level of shocking. Like I can't believe. Except mm-hmm. this is a beautiful looking movie. It's it's film noirish, yeah. and you're watching an actual rape scene take place in front of your eyes. I mean, and and Hopper, to his credit, and so to Rosalini, they fully commit to that scene, and that's why it works. She yeah. actually they go was not wearing any underwear. Yeah, yeah. she's naked. She didn't know when they were yeah. filming. I guess. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, he didn't know that she wasn't wearing. And that it. was an interesting thing of uh, once again bringing back the ugliness. And this is a beautiful mm-hmm. woman, you know, known to be oh, a yeah. beautiful Estee woman. Estee Lauder model. At the all the, yeah, Andrew and, Bergman's, uh, Andrew Bergman's daughter and all this stuff. And when she is uh, um, in her underwear, when she is naked, mm-hmm. all this stuff, he shoots her very not flattering. Yeah. No, like they make her. Her, her 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 nudity and her sexuality ugly. They make her ugly, you know, and it's which I thought was, really, thought well, was really really interesting. It's kind of yeah. like a drag queen almost well, yeah. to it. Like, yeah, it's just like it's it's kind of campy, kind of Warhol esque. Like you like talked about the way she's presented as a lounge singer. It's it's a little off putting. Well, yeah. I watched the documentary on the special features of the DVD, and Isabel Barcelini was talking about um, some of those nude scenes in her. Her idea of that character, and one of the things that she said is um, that she always viewed Dorothy Valance as like a doll in the sense that on the surface she looks beautiful and she's made up, she has her hair just so, and the makeup and everything. But underneath it all, like, you know, she portrays a sense of glamour, even though she might be slightly glamorous because she's being abused and raped. Um, she's just completely broken underneath and inside. And so that particular scene, they have her take the wig off and, you know, she takes her clothes off. She is literally and physically removing that outer shell and we're seeing this broken piece, you know, broken pieces of a woman that's left and that's why her body is a little out of shape and she's, like, bruised. And Isabella Rossellini actually kind of let herself go a little bit during this Mm -hmm. filming to really commit to that because any woman in that particular situation... um, would not look healthy or beautiful. And I think that is such a testament to Isabella Rossellini as an actress and even as a woman. You know, most women, especially in today's society, you know, 2016, if they knew they had various nude scenes in a movie, they'd be hitting the gym like nobody's business. They'd Mm -hmm. want to look beautiful and perfect. And the fact that Isabella Rossellini did the opposite to commit so much to a character and expose herself literally and figuratively, I think is really beautiful and really gave me a newfound sense of admiration for her um, as a human, as a woman, and as an actress. But I just think it's interesting because she, like David Lynch, so it sort of makes sense that they dated for a long while, was so detailed in her thinking and really looked at things from a humanistic perspective without vanity or without any kind of selfish motives where a lot of actresses I don't think would you know, I mean, she was completely naked on screen. Mm-hmm. You know, in the yeah. scene, and I mean, that's a lot. And and she was not portrayed in a positive way. I mean, it was very degrading. Yeah. And as a woman, there are some moments where it was hard for me to watch. But but thinking and looking at it as a role and as a character and as a person helped me, you know, accept it a little bit easier than just thinking, oh, they're objectifying a woman. Now, if they were, I don't know, in a, in a very strange way, even though, yes, she was exposed, it was done very tastefully um if that makes sense if i'm making sense it does and that actually became a very big bone of contention in the Mm -hmm. 80s when this movie was released especially with roger ebert because the same Mm -hmm. the scene you were talking about became a major uh 
issue mm-hmm. that Ebert had with the film. He did not like the movie at all. He gave it one star. Yeah. He recognized the talent, mm-hmm. but he was really offended by the way Lynch filmed Isabella Rossellini and had her doing all these things. Right. And he said, and Lynch makes it a campy and he makes it a comedy. And he, you know, she's committing all the way and doing all these things most actresses wouldn't do. And he's not committing to it. He's saying that she has bravery and he did. All of those choices were Isabella Rossellini's. I heard him come out of her mouth in that interview. And, you know, she was the one that decided how she wanted to be shot, in what ways, what was acceptable for her and what wasn't. And the scene where she is on the lawn and she's standing. She actually was trying to. That's um, disturbing. To, she was yeah. trying yes, to. It, is. it, I was, it, it was. It was. It was disturbing. And she was trying to mimic that. I don't want to say mimic because that makes it seem like it's not being taken, you know, heavily. But she was trying to um, replicate the uh, that classic image of that little girl in Vietnam. The napalm. Running, oh, yeah. The napalm. Mm-hmm. The way she's standing because Isabel Rossellini at that point her character had no integrity. She had no nothing left. This was she was so desperate that she's standing there, you know, begging someone to help her, you know. Um But I think Ebert's issue with it and this is not necessarily what I agree with. I'm mm-hmm. just like is that prior to that you have this like 1950 standoff between the jock boyfriend getting angry yeah. at yeah. that mm-hmm. and it's like kind of like, you know, the tone is 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 Oh, it just it shocks you satirically right out of it. Yeah. And you I just when we, you know, I've seen this movie many times. <clears throat> and I didn't remember that. You know, right. there's a lot of those scenes that we watch, and everybody knows those scenes and they're very disturbing. But after a while, you become a little desensitized to it. But it wasn't until we were watching it, and you kind of forgot forgot that that's what was coming up. And you have that scene that's going on, and all of a sudden, she just pops out of nowhere like yeah. that. And I was, I mean, I was literally like almost a little scared. Yeah. It was, it was just, it was very, very disturbing. It was freaky. Because yeah. yeah. it's taking you. He's setting you up up here. You got, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, I mean, he, and he just comes out of nowhere with a left hook and just smacks you in the face with this really disturbing imagery. But that's what he, that's what this movie is. This movie is yeah, a, I mean, I mean, it is a clinic in, in, in yeah. imagery. It yeah. looks, all these, you know, they're all great snapshots. They're just, yeah, you they know, are. it's, I realized that watching it today or yesterday, mm-hmm. it's a moving snap, it was a series of snapshots, which and is fine. I mean, you know, but it's, you know. Also right. got the whole, Juxtaposition between the benign and the shocking. You yeah, the whole. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what I get. What Ebert was saying with the whole thing. Um, that yeah, you go back to the everyday world. It's like hey, yeah, yeah. jokey little lines. We're gonna talk like Ozzy and Harriet, and then oh wait a minute, bitch slap, S and M, hit me, boom. Like, but here's know. the thing, okay, and this is, and you know, keep in mind, guys, I'm a pretty modest woman. I mean, I was the most dressed girl at my prom. Mm-hmm. All right, I, I'm very modest in how I dress and how I view things, and I am certainly not someone who would ever advocate um, nudity, especially for women. But I think one of the things that makes it so shocking is the time. It was 1986. Yeah. If that were in a film today, it would be light. It wouldn't even matter. We've seen how many boobs now all the time everywhere. Yeah. We see you know, women exposed all yeah. the time and nothing's ever said. And I think that perhaps Robert Ebert was upset because, you know, for whatever reason, he might have thought it was pornographic or who knows well. what. But at the same, you know... <laughs> well, there's a I problem think, with that with Ebert did beyond yeah. I think that it was, so. it was kind of... It was very shocking for the time, which I understand. But to defend my David Lynch, I think it's a testament to the fact that he was very much ahead of his time and that he was someone who wasn't necessarily concerned with pleasing the masses, who was dedicated to his art and to telling his story. 
Um, and I think so were the actors that worked with him. I mean, think about it. Most of the actors, most anybody that you see in a David Lynch movie is always in a David Lynch movie. Oh, yeah. He has his he tribe has. of actors, and that says a lot about him as a director. Oh, okay. yeah. And yes, in fact, Blue right. uh, <clears throat> Velvet was sort of um, the starting point for that. And in this movie, he really fostered his relationship with Kyle MacLachlan, who later went on to star in Twin Peaks. Um, he also started. No, he was in Dune. Well, no, he was in Dune. He was starting Dune. Exactly. He discovered him for Dune. He for discovered Dune. him in yeah. Dune. But I mean, he obviously came back to do. He worked with right. Lynch and, and you know well, multiple. Brad Dourif, who's in this movie as well, and also in Dune. Jack Nance. Jack Nance, who has a huge relationship with. As a matter of fact, Jack Nance was the lead in Eraserhead. Yes. yes. Um, he's gone that far back, but was he? But he and Dourif, you know, it's kind of always being in the villains crew. And Jack Nance was always that guy. He was Paul in this movie. Mm-hmm. He was Baron Harkonnen's just lackey, flunky, yeah. the flunky in Dune, um, and Wild and, and Wild at Heart. He was the he was one of Bobby Baru's mm-hmm. kind of crew at the trailer park. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. With one of my favorite lines, "My dog barks some." Uh, <laughs> then going into this diatribe about his dog, which I thought was just absolutely. I mean, that's that scene in actually Wild at Heart makes me really remember him going. Oh my God! That's the guy from Dune. That remained maybe when I saw Wild Heart, I went, "That's that guy," and just absolutely just loved him. And he and, had a life, a real life that was something out of a David Lynch movie. Yeah, you know, I Who, mean, Jack, Jack Nance did. Yeah, yeah. Um, he uh, was like he died mysteriously. Yeah, and uh, well, he, he died. Was, no, he died in a fight. He didn't die mysteriously. Well, I mean, he got in a fight at a donut shop <laughs> for no. But yeah, it was. Uh, it was one of those things, but it was like a couple of days later, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think he got. I think he got a head. He probably got a head injury and kind of drowned his brain and blood or whatever. I mean, yeah. I mean, he yeah. Yeah, he sustained a head injury, but yeah. Well, but uh, was Laura screwed. Dern was also someone else who started who worked with David Lynch multiple times after this movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, the and composer and the composer um, Angelo Baldaventi. He did the soundtrack for this film and all the other films, include and and even Twin Peaks. Mulholland Drive. I mean, after this point, you name it. David Lynch worked with um, Angelo Baldamenti, who the Twin Peaks soundtrack gang. YouTube it. It's amazing. Um, so anyway, I just think that that's really remarkable and noteworthy, the fact that he kind of fostered all these relationships with people who continued to work with him throughout his other projects. And that's typical of a lot of great directors, like Scorsese, yeah. which is the same directors, Coen Brothers. You know, you see that trend with great directors. They kind of keep, keep bringing back, yeah. like, Star player. Adam McKay. Yeah. I mean, for Adam McKay. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Adam McKay brings Steve Carell into every one of his yeah. movies. Yeah, there you go. There but I guess the point I was trying to make is the fact that David Lynch has a sense of style and he has a certain way of making films, and people kind of have grown to know what to expect with David Lynch. They know it's going to be a little strange and bizarre and offbeat, mm-hmm. and the fact yeah. that these people, he's kind of built a tribe that's. Not only accepts that but embraces that. I think that says a lot, especially for back then. You know, in the '80s when this mm-hmm. movie was very controversial. Yeah, and I think uh, with the Eber thing we were talking about earlier, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with the sentiment. Like, I think Ebert was offended. I think because I think he's like, I'm really feeling horrible for this woman in this movie, and yet. It's like he's winking at the camera. He felt yeah. Lynch, which I don't think Lynch is winking at the camera. I did not feel I don't that think way. So. I, don't, I don't think it's winking. I think it's a Lynch 
is blending all these different tones yes. together. That's what he's trying to do as an artist is blend. I want to try comedy because it's really like there's horror in this movie. There's comedy. There's there's noir, film noirish elements it's to not, it. It's not honestly David Lynch. I never I would never use comedy to describe David Lynch. Quirky. He's quirky. I don't no, know. There's, there's a lot of comedy. Like I guess what I find moments. if I find something amusing and I laugh at it, I consider that a comedic. Device, yeah. you know, yes. like but that doesn't, do that but that doesn't oh, necessarily yeah. mean it is like an intentive type of genre. Oh, I think I think Dean Stockwell's performance is completely intentionally comedic. I think it was. I think it was more bizarre. I think David Lynch was trying to take us to another level of strangeness with yeah. that. I think the woman uh, that was that not that to say went, that it wasn't funny. Dancing on the top. The woman of the dancing on charger. top of the car that the that was Brad Dorf. I think that was done for comic effect. And in a movie like this, that is this, you have to because you've got to give people a break. Uh, he probably definitely learned that with a racer head. <laughs> you've got to give, you've got to let up a little bit. I really, and not saying that it's all of a sudden going to be, you know, somebody turning to the camera and 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 you know saying a line that's really funny. Yeah. But you got to give, you got to, you got to lighten it up a little bit. You got to give a little bit of break in all this. Are you saying, Phil, that that? Uh... Crying warm babies is not hilarious. Well, now it is. But it's ahead of its time, you know. And, now I look back on it. To get back to the Ebert thing, the one thing that st- struck me when I read that uh, again today uh, was that he's saying Isabella and that Hopper both commit hardcore to their roles, and he just was like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But the big one he was using as a comparison was the last tango in Paris where Bertolucci just went balls out bleak with the whole thing because as bleak and brave and unvarnished as Brando and Maria I Schneider think the did. bottom line is Robert Eger, Robert Eger, whatever, <laughs> can't say his name right now because I'm frustrated. <laughs> I think the bottom line is he just didn't like feeling uncomfortable. Well, too damn bad. Oh, if you don't God. like feeling uncomfortable, Roger and Ebert, then don't go see a David Lynch movie. Thank you. Good day. Okay. But there's one more thing about There's that. the hate mail that Ebert's the, the getting man, The man did I hang people out. I love. The man did hang out with Russ Meyer and he did write Beyond the Valley of the Dogs. Yeah. yeah. So, he's got... But yeah, the yeah. man <laughs> also is a critic for a living. Let that... Okay. My yeah, God. but Roger Ebert. I mean, yeah, he's a critic, but I think anybody who's a movie fan, you can't, you really can't take a shit on Roger if Ebert. You ever, yeah. see, you if, really can't. If you All see Beyond I'm the Valley is, of the if Dolls, if you don't like what's cooked, don't eat it. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, highly recommend it. By the way, <laughs> it is so bad, it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's like the same thing when you see a Michael Bay film. You know what you're getting into. That's okay. why I don't go. Don't complain about it then. Exactly. <laughs> I, I still got, haven't gotten over his one-star review of Raising Arizona. So that's where I see <laughs> well, it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Um, but um, I would say this about Lynch is he, this movie is popular with so many great character actors. Oh, We've yeah. already mentioned oh, a lot yeah. of them. Yeah. This revived Hopper's career. He was struggling in Hollywood. This like, and Hoosiers. Yeah. This and time, Hoosiers yeah. the same year. It was a one-two punch. Like mm-hmm. he, um, In fact, he took this role. His agent advised him not to saying no this this character has no redeeming yeah. character traits or value yeah. you know and he goes I don't care he says David Lynch is an important filmmaker and everyone in Hollywood's going to see this movie I want this role because I want to show people what I can do and boy did he did and he, he also reportedly told David Lynch that he was Frank Booth 
He was like, he I want to do this role because I'm Frank Booth. And David Lynch jokingly said, oh, well, if he's Frank Booth, I don't know if we want him on the set. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and I, I that probably is a sadness thing we're talking about. Like, I've lived life yeah. and I've heard a lot of people, so well, I know. Well, think about all the like, drugs really, and stuff he took. I mean, he knows that. Yeah. yeah. And it's really funny because of the, uh, probably about two years later, he's in a movie. And I think I mentioned this before in the last podcast. Yeah. About a movie called um, um, River's Edge, where he plays Feck. Um, about the same time, actually. It was about eighty six. It was eighty yeah, seven. Eighty six. But it was the same. It really was along the lines of the same character. But it was really. I think it was at that time. But that was, like I said, that was Dennis Hopper coming into being Dennis Hopper of yeah. that kind of thing. A little bit with Apocalypse Now. You know, you kind of saw that. You know, he was kind of becoming. You know, but it was that thing of like, okay, Hopper's nuts and. Yeah. We're just gonna go ahead and let him be on camera and be fucking nuts, you know. This this all built to him playing King Koopa in a Super Mario. Oh yeah! <laughs> Every step I'm closer to that that ultimate. You know, working with James, working with James Dean to be in King Koopa. There's quite, you know, it all led to. It all led to that moment. You, you bring up a great point, Brennan. Like uh, Hopper is such a significant figure in, in film history, more than people realize. He's a great character yeah. actor. I love his performances, but. He started out wor- working with James Dean on Rebel Without a Cause mm-hmm. and Giant. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, he obviously started battling with Hollywood the first time around. Then he comes back in the late 60s with Easy Rider. Easy Rider is really dated now. Oh, yeah. But it is an incredibly well, significant film. He had a it, small part in Cool Hand Luke. Yeah. Uh, at that time. And then actually, when unaired episode, they're aired now, but in a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant episode of Twilight Zone. Uh, it's really? it was one of the ones that they never aired, and if you ever watch it, you'll see why. Because he's well, how basically, could we watch it if it was never aired? Well, because they air him now, but it, at the oh, time man. it wasn't. Because he was basically a young man who is. I mean, it's they don't say it, but it's just such a parallel. Who's basically brought into the neo Nazi party and ends up like leading the neo Nazi party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you look up, find it on YouTube. Look at I mean, it's it's really and to watch him in that. He's got talk about James Dean. He has such a he's very. I mean, you watch. He's still young then, very good looking, kind of that dark brooding thing where you could see at a certain point in time he could have been a huge star in the mid '60s as a leading actor. You know, um, that's why I love that episode because it really shows. A real star power with him, and if he had decided to go down that route, he could have been. He could have taken over where James Dean left off. He, he was also had a small role in True Grit, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. He did. I yeah. heard read about that. Very, yeah. very small role in the original True Grit. Um, but also, uh, go to Hopper. We'll hop along here for a minute. One of my favorite things he ever did was the scene in True Romance. With, oh, absolutely. Uh, Walken. Yeah. It was oh, the be- one of the best things that. either one of them have ever done. Yeah. Period. That is a brilliantly written. It was Tarantino yeah. who wrote that scene, and it, it's a great scene. I would still argue, though, this with all those credentials, this is Dennis Hopper's best performance, and his most oh, because he's not actor. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it is an amazing. I am a sucker for villain performances, like over the top. Jack Nicholson's my favorite actor. I can just leave it like right. that. Hopper is. A contemporary of Nicholson's, they were friends, I think. Yeah, yeah. And he he has that same energy, that manic energy that Nicholson has when he's playing villains. And that scene when we first meet Frank, which we've covered a bit, is just like wow. I mean, that is like that's what an actor dies for—is that yeah. kind of unrelenting villain. He's able to go over the top. There's no top with this character because everything works in favor. 
because Lynch is a surrealist, so you can go over the top and still work right. within the confines yeah. of what he's doing. Well, and he's funny. He's really funny in this movie. I mean, Pabst Blue... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pabst Blue Ribbon. Yeah. But I think the reason it's so funny is because he's so committed to the character. I don't think the lines themselves are funny. I don't necessarily no, think... And that's why I say I feel like this is not a comedy. I would never classify this as a comedy because I think Dennis Hopper is just so damn good and so committed to being Frank Booth that he does come off as funny. There are moments where it, you're laughing and you're like, I should not be laughing at this guy. I don't think it's but, funny like it's like he's doing Jerry Lewis or it's the jerk or anything like that, but I, I think it's satirical. I think yeah. that he is poking fun at society and how Americans view themselves. It becomes, perfect. because it is so over yeah. the top, it's not funny, but it's just that thing that you quote that your friends, because trust me, this quote, a lot of the quotes from this movie, a lot of my friends did. And it's the things like we were quoting Caddyshack. Yeah. I mean, it's on that level. We're making each other laugh because he is just so ridiculous. And you have, once again, you have to laugh, man, because if not... You know, it's going to do some damage to your psyche, you know, because it's it's supposed to make you that uncomfortable because it's like, I have to laugh right now. I have to find this, you know, well, uh, humor in it or something, because if not, you know, I'm it's it's going to it's going to you know, it's going to damage me. I'm going to become Frank. Well, the thing you know. is, is that like life doesn't make sense. And that's one of the things that David Lynch always says is that life doesn't make sense. And that's what makes people uncomfortable is because they want everything to make sense. And I don't, I mean, I personally don't think that this movie is very satirical at all. I think it's more of things not making sense and things, and being like, for example, I guess the best way I'm trying to like convey this is growing up, whenever me and my two other sisters got in trouble, like if something happened and dad would line us up and be like, who did it? And like my dad has a very, he's Italian, he has a very distinctive temper and I would always laugh when he would get mad. I would just laugh, even yeah. though I was innocent, and even though what he was saying was not funny, I was going to get grounded or whatever he was yelling, I would just laugh, because for whatever reason, I found it to be funny, because his face or his expression or how he moved, it struck me as funny, but it wasn't like satirical, my dad wasn't trying to be funny, the content that he was saying was very serious, but there was something in me that just was like... I, this is funny. I know where you're coming from with that, but I, I still feel it's meant to be funny. I think it's meant to have, like, you're it's supposed to, to see what I'm pointing out that. Yeah. Yeah. It's meant to break up the tension. Well, it's, yeah. It's, I, I, well, I think Nicholson in The Shining is similar with Dennis Hopper, right. where you're laughing at a lot, like Nicholson in the bar scene, and even when he's antagonizing uh, Shelley Duvall at the end, yeah. it's heightened in a way that's very. Odd, and you know, because Kubrick, I think, looks at the world in a similar way that Lynch does, yeah. which is like he's taking reality as we know it and, and kind of poking holes and like things and that are kind of absurd about it. He's, well, he's him, finding absurdity in yeah, life. Caricatures. You know? well, I mean, it's like right. David Lynch. He's finding the absurd but I don't think he's trying to make fun of it. No, he's not making he's not, fun of like, it. Like, I don't think he's trying but to no. make rape a funny thing. No. No, 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 no I don't think rape is. The fact that Dennis Hopper is being funny while he's doing it is one thing because it's so absurd but, you well, know. I think I they're funny but I don't, I don't think that part is funny but I think even in Twin Peaks there's like you know, everybody, there's a over the top sense, like it's very the way people seem. Gone fishing, you know, they'll just say something weird. Yeah. Even in this movie, the, my yeah. favorite line, the funniest <laughs> line, and we talked, Tony and I were talking about this earlier, is uh, there's a scene where Kyle MacLachlan and uh, 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 Laura Dern are in that bar and they're talking about beers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and oh. she's like, she's like, 
what do you, you want, you like Heineken? And he's like, what do you drive? My dad drinks Spud. And then Tom McLaughlin just goes like, king of beers. Yeah. yeah. It's like, not to himself. Well, that whole Heineken right. thing. It's so funny. Yeah. And right. the, the scene's well, when over. he goes right. to the, when he, when he uses the restroom and, yeah. and her, in the apartment, he's like, ah, oh, Heineken. Heineken. I mean, yeah. that's, that's meant to make you laugh. Yeah. That yeah. is. But I'm talking about some of these very intense scenes of Frank Booth. I don't necessarily think are supposed to be funny. No, and they're not. Just Dennis Hopper is so good. I think. And, I, think and I do think there's some adds, humor though. They're meant to relieve tension. They're meant to relieve tension. They got to give you something. The, the yeah. Dean Stockwell song when he's singing the song. That's, I think that's that's absurd. one thing. I'm talking about the very intimate scenes with Isabel Rosalie. Oh no, 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 that's not supposed to be funny. I'm talking about the controversial scenes. Like those, I don't think are funny in any way, shape, or form. And I don't think David Lynch is trying to be funny. Now, some of the things that um, Dennis Hopper does, like the little nuances with his hands, and y- it yeah. might make you laugh, but I don't think that that's the intent. So that's what I was trying to prove is that I don't mm-hmm. think David Lynch was. No, no, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely funny right. Slapstick comedy. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. trying to be funny with that. No, he's not yeah. making a slapstick comedy. <laughs> no, no. Though I do think he is. In, it's a black in, comedy. It's in a very, in a very strange way, he's making a cartoon here. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. it's it's all the you know there's just there's no basis in any kind of basis in in, in reality whatsoever, and it's and it's it's all you know and and you it's and I think that's the reason why I said why I, why I went to watch this again and I kind of lost interest is because I couldn't I didn't care about any of these people I didn't delve I I, I suddenly wasn't interested in. What they were about, and you know, I can watch a movie over and over. I can watch a bad movie over and over again because I'm invested in something in these people because there's something based there. But this is, yeah, like I said, I mean, it's a bunch of snapshots, bunch. and there's great scenes and there's cool scenes to watch. And uh, but you know, it's you know, I think, and they, but then you know, the end of the day, but I, you know, I think that was his intention too. He was like, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to tell a story here. I'm just trying to, you know, I'm putting, I'm putting art out here. And um, and maybe you like we had different ideas of what everybody's motivations are, and where 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 Dennis Hopper and Isabella Rossellini were in that relationship, and how they got to that relationship, and and that maybe he made it that way, and made certain things of like it could be this way, it could be this way, so that people would have a discussion that way. I mean, it's you know, I think it was yeah, it's definitely more art than it was entertainment. And you know, even though it's great entertainment. It's quotable. It's got a lot of good quotes. I mean, I've seen it quoted everywhere from Clerks to Mystery Science Theater. I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, I'll fuck everything that moves. That's yeah. in Clerks. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it's also, you go with that. that. yesterday. No, I'm to go with that. <laughs> to go with that. To go along with that. Um, they're not really characters. They're placeholders for... To go along with what you were saying about it yeah. being a series of snapshots, they're just like the placeholders in the snapshots. To yeah, hold, they kind of hold them together, but don't really. Right. You know. I think my favorite character though has been Dean Stockwell's character. Oh God, he's great. I mean, that's yeah. that's. <laughs> I think that is done for comic effect. <laughs> oh yeah, that is. Well, I mean, he 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 play. I think he punches Kyle McLaughlin the same way Tommy Lee Jones punches. Uh, uh, <laughs> someone in Batman forever. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> it's the same kind of punch. Like, when he's making it go, and he starts smiling. And probably the same amount of makeup on both actors, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Movies. yeah. Um, oh, it's so good. I, I love Dean Stockwell in this, too. And it's another guy like has this great countercultural history that you're not really aware of. Right. Like, well, it's I, also a good child actor. Because yeah. uh, he was in Dune. Yeah. 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 And um, I grew up with Dean Stockwell and Quantum Leap. That was my right. introduction to Dean Stockwell. And 
you know, I think we made a joke after the movie, like, what if, what if Scott Bakula was in the closet? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. You know, and it, it, it makes perfect sense now when you see uh, Keith Stockwell. Then you're going into your circular thing here. As will bring me to something I want to talk about. Talking about a bunch of uh, people that were brought back kind of in the same time. Dean Stockwell, Dennis Hopper, and the one and only Roy Orbison. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Roy, that was when we're like around this time is when Roy started his the people started to take him seriously again. Was about here, then that black and white night concert, and then the Wilburys, and so he kinda got the end of his life, you know, when he died, um, back kind of on top. That I read about too. That yeah. his the use of in dreams and that sequence with Stockwell was what revived Orbison's career in a way. Got interest generated interest in Orbison again. Mm-hmm. And then the next a couple years later, it's the Wilburys. You yes, know, which I that was my introduction to Roy Orbison. I loved yeah. that band. And then he had a solo album with the Wilburys. I think they kind of recorded. Yeah, Jeff Lynne produced it. Yeah, yeah. It, you got it. it. Yeah, the song you got yeah. it is on there. That was it's a good posthumous. Song. I like that song. Yeah. Yeah. And he died like at that point. And and Roy Orbison fits the mood of what Lynch is going for so beautifully. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Same thing with Blue Velvet by Bobby Vinton. It's just like these classic early pre-Beatles '60s singles that have these haunting melodies. Yes. They're they're very they're classic melodies, but they're also haunting and. And Orbison is the is the king of that. Yeah, I think that they were originally going to use crying in that scene, but then he liked in dreams even better, which I think in dreams sums up David in, Lynch. Yeah, in dreams is a, in dreams yeah. is a much better choice for this particular movie than crying would have been. Yeah, you know? right. I mean, maybe you could have used running scared. I don't know, but it's. Uh, I mean, I'm a I'm a big Roy Orbison guy, so so am I. He, I think he's. <laughs> Right up there with the all-time greats. So uh, he's one of our our best, I and mean, one of yeah. the great vocalists we ever had. A guy's vocals are just uh, soaring. And I mean, Bobby Vinton was kind of like a teen idol, like a one-hit wonder, yeah. I yeah. think. And that also fits in with it as well. Like I think yeah. the music is beautiful. I think the music is also kind of like a perfect deception. Just like in the beginning when we see the white picket fence and the blue sky and the happy firemen, we think that Lumberton is going to be like Pleasantville, when in fact right. it's not. It's a very strange abstract place which I think most small towns are like when you get to know them yeah like American Beauty name although this is a much better movie than American Beauty <laughs> I know I American Beauty does not hold, for me it doesn't hold up well um, um, but yeah it's that same sort of imagery with the rose you get like yeah. that sense and the rose is against a picket fence that, uh, that you think this movie's going to be something that it isn't just like we think life and people are something that they turn out not to be I think that's what David Lynch does. Yeah. Is he, he does it all. Even in Muhammad Drive, like Naomi wants mm-hmm. is wide eyed. She comes down. Yes. And she plays this really innocent person that's caught up in this very, like complex, complex and erotic yeah. and very disturbing, disturbing situation. But all his characters, I mean, even there's an innocence to the way he portrays a lot of his characters. Like there's just that, that an innocence and a, a night. Yeah. Well, I mean, even with even with Jeffrey, you know, with Claude McLaughlin, please play Jeffrey. Is Jeffrey Beaumont? He does come in very innocent. He he loves not naive. He's not naive, but he loves to come off as very as very way more mature than he is, especially to you know to Laura Dern. But he, you know, there's there's you know that point where just it all just kind of comes to a head, and he's just sitting there crying because he's he can't he was he's you know. He's realized that he's way over his head. Yeah. He's living a and double he, life. And he doesn't know yeah. what to do. He's also found a side of himself that he doesn't 
understand. And but he seems to be taking to it way too well. <laughs> At first, he's not being violent to her, mm-hmm. you know. But then he ends up hitting her, mm-hmm. and which is exactly what she wants, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, the, the whole thing is just really. I don't necessarily know if she wants that. I think that's what she's used to. I'm pretty sure she wants it. I pretty. Sure, I don't know. I mean, my. I, I honestly think that she. There's. I don't know. When people are abused, there's a psychological element that really affects them, and I think her reality is obviously very distorted. She wants someone to take care of her nicely, yeah. but she's used to being abused. I think. I th- yeah, I think it's a different. I think I agree with Tony that I think she's. Um, like that's what she's used to. With. Yeah. Frank Booth is with so Frank. corrupted. Here, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I think she's that so she is seems to have had a very healthy relationship with her husband. This is yes. why I don't think it is. I think there was something underlying. That's why I say I think that she did pursue a relationship with Frank Booth and kind of brought all of this upon herself and her family. Uh, that's possible. No. <laughs> it Absolutely is. Not. Oh, there's people that are able to do oh, that yeah. because and not saying that this that's is just That's not the case in this movie, folks. Uh, I, 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 I disagree. I think that's exactly what was the you think situation. That she, if she had that much control, why wouldn't she still have that much control? I think she got Any out woman of, that can manipulate to that degree, I mean, you, you don't just lose all sense of integrity. It got out of hand. Just it got like, out of hand. It wasn't, she like wasn't it in control. Didn't. She wasn't ever in control. She was, she pursued a relationship with this man because of what, you know, and, and I think she bit off more than she could chew. Once again, the same thing with Jeffrey. Why are the women always the ones that are doing the wrong? Well, I just like why I, can't no. he just be a sick man well, that once, stalks her well, and kidnaps her family? Well, well, hold on. Once I <laughs> like I said, just with Jeffrey, went down a path that they weren't ready for. Jeffrey came to her house. Jeffrey hid in her closet. Jeffrey made like that decision. I said, Jeffrey, Jeffrey pursued. pursued her. She pursued Frank. And Jeffrey kept coming back. If Jeffrey would have never came back after that night, I highly doubt she would have ever seen him again. Right. He came back. But what I mean, all I'm saying is, is that she and Jeffrey, that's why they are very much the same. And actually, which is really funny, one of the lines that I love is when Frank Booth looks Jeffrey in the eye and goes, you're like me. The whole, all three of them are involved in this relationship. Jeffrey, they always were. Jeffrey just hadn't come into it yet. I really Except think that's you're the like way it me, was. Probably in my in my interpretation of that is because Jeffrey's becoming obsessed with Dorothy Balance just the way Frank did. I'm actually seeing both of your point of views when I look at the movie as a whole uh, with men and women, because on the one hand, I think there is an element that Lynch is trying to say this is circular that there's an undercurrent, like the opening, which is famous. The opening uh, shot in the movie is at this. This perfect picket fence suburban neighborhood with yeah. the flowers, with the, the flowers and, the and everything, and then you see the yeah. the, the beetles battling right. underneath, and, and they're, they're howling like amazing wolves. sound effects to do with a, a lot of that. Yeah, right. So in that regard, he's basically saying all these characters have an undercurrent of darkness to them. Some of them are overt, like yeah. Frank. He wears everything on his sleeve, and the others, like Dorothy and Jeffrey, they're kind of revealed through the circumstance. On the other hand, I do see where Tony's coming from. Where I think the women in this movie. I think Lynch sympathizes with women greatly in this movie because he sympathizes with Dorothy and what she's going through, and he also sympathizes with uh, Laura Dern's mm-hmm. character too because she's yeah. pushed aside. And, you know, and she's lied to. And right, and they're they're both treated like crap in this movie. And on a side note, I have to say that you know because Dorothy and Frank are such uh, cinematic characters, they stand out like a sore thumb. Right. 
you have to acknowledge the excellent work of Kyle McLaughlin and Laura Dern in this movie. They are outstanding as these, like, the Hardy Boy-esque yeah. Yeah. undercurrent. They have to be understated so the other guys can be overstated. Which is a trick, because it's only, like, McLaughlin's second movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dune I mean, was his first way. one, and... Well, this is definitely his... This is definitely the step he takes for Agent Cooper, because yeah. it's the same kind of... Kyle McLaughlin plays innocent and nice and kind of just together really well really naturally like that kind of like you know king of beers like he's someone that you feel like you know you know uh yeah you know a jeffrey beaumont character i think lynch cast him because he identifies with mclaughlin yeah. and feels like a perfect substitute for him in his movies exactly right. yeah. and he even dresses like him yeah. in this movie and i think lynch in general like uh, he's the real deal like a lot of guys they try to be they're pretentious they try to be what lynch right. is Lynch is a real deal. I don't think he makes these movies because he's trying to show off. I think this is really the kind no, of movies he wants to make. Yeah. Yeah. He is nothing like you'd expect him to be. He's a proud Boy Scout. I was about like, to say Eagle Scout. Yeah, he was an Eagle Scout, right? And, and he loved Bob's Big Boy, which we never called it Bob's Big Boy in Ohio. It was always Frisch's Big Boy, yeah. right? But he loves like that iconography of the 50s and perfect beauty and stuff. Apple pie, good damn fine cup of coffee. Cherry pie, thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the guy for that reason. Like he's just he's just like a, a really authentic dude. Like you could tell. Like this is the stuff he wants to make, um, and he works in dreams. Like I don't think he he studied surrealism with Dolly. Like in a way, mm -hmm. like I studied all the greats. It's like oh, people tell me to go to Dolly a lot, but I'm not really that familiar with Dolly until later on. I just work with dreams. I take what I'm, I'm feeling in my dreams and I put it to... But he also uses things in real pen. life, like the scene with Isabel Rossellini where she was in the front yard. When um, David Lynch was young, he and his brother, they grew up in a very nice, wholesome, you know, Lumberton type of town on the surface. Um, and there was one day they were walking home from school and they saw a naked woman like that walking around that looked very disturbed. And David Lynch had told the story. He said him and his brother just kind of cried because they knew something was wrong with her you know like mm -hmm. no woman in their right mind like they knew something was happening with her and they felt very badly for her and they didn't really know they never saw her again and so he used that story as a piece of this movie um but i think that's interesting like that he's able to and again it just is it kind of i don't know sort of solidifies i guess his credentials with me in terms of being like a really creative director and taking things that are maybe surreal and are dreamlike, but also incorporating them with things that really do happen in real life, like kind of blurring the lines between reality and dreams, which... Mm -hmm. yeah. He's a very square guy. I mean, yeah. literally, that's the best way to describe him. He's very square, yeah. but he's into transcendental meditation, so, and mm -hmm. just well, all these outre things that... We watched a, uh, before you guys came over, we watched a clip of uh, Kyle McLaughlin was on David Letterman when Twin Peaks was on. In the 90s, yeah. And like early, like, 91 or so. And he had, gave a story about David Lynch came over because he liked the way Kyle McLaughlin's stairs in his house looked. So he came over just to <laughs> shoot pictures with, like, little miniature men oh, up against the baseball. Just was... still photos on a day, just like a normal day, for yeah. his own amusement. Like, his, he wasn't going to publish it or anything. But, right. You know, because I think, if say anything about David Lynch, he's a brilliant visual uh, artist. I mean, he's just... His movies, like you said, look good. Eraserhead, that's all it is. I it's think all, it's yeah. Yeah. And I think if he took snippets of Eraserhead and he put it like in the framework of a story and more dialogue and less staring, 
You would. The movie's got a lot of staring. And crying. <laughs> a lot of close-ups and crying, ba warm babies. I mean, that movie's kind of fun to make fun of. But, uh, um, it's definitely the Warshaw test for, you know, how, <laughs> how, how much bullshit critics are. Um, I love this film. But it is this thing, though. It is visually since black and white. You got the drone of the factories in the background. And, you know, this movie's great. Even when Dennis Harper gets, you know, it's inhaling the thing he gets right in there and uh oh he relishes him and that's the yeah. thing is he oh, took yeah. his time with those scenes yeah. that and he just really like I said I mean he 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 relished it man he, he you could tell he was enjoying himself mm -hmm. he was having a little too much fun like I said he's Frank Booth yeah, yeah. there's yeah. a little bit of something in there that he was <laughs> yeah. like this is gonna be great I can kind of let this loose for the yeah. first time in my life and I won't be you know, I mean, there's yeah, probably a little side to him. It's like, I'm just kind of going to let this loose. And then, yeah, everybody just thinks it's just me acting. But this is kind of exactly maybe how I want to act. And then for the Sometimes deep down inside, you know. For the rest of his career, he just basically for a long time did variations on Frank Booth. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Speed, the yeah. the villain in Speed, that's Frank Booth. Hey, King Koopa was a variation on Frank Booth, too, right? That's kind of what he was going for. What's his name uh, from Waterworld? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, the bad guy in Waterworld. The bad guy in Waterworld. Captain Joe, man. And the precursor is the journalist from Apocalypse Now. That was kind of like Absolutely, the yeah. yeah. That was the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you guys think, like, overall of the movie now? And uh, now we've kind of discussed it and, and deconstructed it a bit. Like, how does it hold up for you? Or if it's your first time, what do you think of it? Is it... One of your favorite Lynch films? Uh, is it one of your favorite films, period? Or what's your overall impression? We'll start with Phil. Um, I, uh, I still love, I mean, I still love this movie and I will watch I just won't watch it. It's definitely a movie that, like, maybe every couple years to watch. Um, coming into this podcast before I watched it for the second time, I kept saying that my two favorite films of David Lynch were. You know, my, my top two were Wild at Heart and Blue Velvet. And kind of funny, a couple weeks before this, and it just happened to be on cable, I watched Dune. Um, so I got this, give me a little perspective, and I realized that, no, it's Dune and Wild at Heart are my two favorites, you know. Um, this movie kind of, you know, when we watched it, I loved it. And I thought it was great, and it's always going to be that, you know, movie. But uh, actually having delved a little bit deeper in it, I have a different perspective but also, I'll have a different appreciation next time I watch it. To realize that this is, like I said, it's it's a, just a really great series. I, I, I just need to let David Lynch just put these images and sounds in front of me and let him affect me mm -hmm. than necessarily watching a movie. Which is fine, which is great. Because it really makes me, for one thing, be able to watch a movie differently that I've seen a bunch of times. And make me stretch as a uh, as a, a, a patron of, of a certain art. So yeah, I like it for that. But uh, you know, but, but as a movie, movie, uh, not as much as I did before. Okay. Um. So I I think Blue Velvet is great. You know, for various reasons I've said earlier, it's probably I don't know if it's my favorite David Lynch thing. I think that I'm very partial. And I have a special affection for Twin Peaks. And that could also be because it was the first thing I saw by David Lynch. But I also think that um, I have an attachment to the characters. And I like the certain, I like the style of Twin Peaks. From the soundtrack to the costumes to the characters and the quirkiness of it. Um, 
But I do think that this is a fantastic film. Like Phil, it's not something I watch every day. I mean, I think it's like a mood piece. It's something you maybe have to be a little bit in the mood for. Um, but the one thing I will say is that the more and more I watch it, I'm exposed to different elements of it that I may have missed prior or I kind of have a, not I want to say different perspective, but I see things maybe in a slightly different way or I'm noticing different things and so it's making me think a little bit more about it. Um, but I, I mean, I, I do think that it's a great piece of film. I think it's where David Lynch really found his sense of style and started really developing that, that uh, classic Lynch that we all kind of come to love and think about. You know, it's where he started really getting heavy into the character development and giving each character their own little quirks or somehow mm -hmm. making them real. Like with Frank Booth, he was obsessed with paths and, you know, uh, I think it's neat that he brought those sort of small details into the characters but very relevant. Uh, and of course that carried on over into Twin Peaks as well. Um, but I think Blue Velvet's a great movie. I, I really like the, uh, I call it like a perfect deception. So I think that's kind of what it is. And so I like it. For me, it has dropped to third on my list, I think. Um, basically, and you would be precise. <laughs> basically because, uh, well, Dune, I'm such a sci-fi nerd that I still love it. I'm one of the ones that does love that movie. But the only Lynch movie I've ever seen that holds up as a true film from beginning to end is The Elephant Man. The Elephant Man is just a fantastic movie from the beginning to the end. It has a complete arc. Yes, there are David Lynchian flourishes with the like imagery of the elephants and whatnot. Gets touches on the surreal, but it tells a real it tells a true a real story from beginning to end. And by the end of it, you still care about the characters. And <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that yeah, I like I like Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet was my first thing after Twin Peaks that I watched. And uh, Wild at Heart is also kind. of, I mean, after the Dune and uh, Elephant Man, I would go Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, like flip flop back and forth, <laughs> and because it it's just uh, Wild at Heart was probably the first adult David Lynch movie I saw on big screen, so I still remember Willem Dafoe's head exploding <laughs> vividly. Um, oh my gosh! It was, but yeah, I watching it again. It wasn't as much fun to watch as it was when we went and saw it in the movie theater. And in fact, before we saw it in the movie theater couple years ago I've owned it on blu-ray DVD all the a bunch of different formats and I will honestly say one of the things that always I used it for was uh, the hypnotic imagery and dream logic that he uses in blue velvet even though it is one of his more cohesive narratives it uh, was used to put me to sleep I, I I literally I mean that's it, a scary it, thought I was usually I was usually asleep before the bugs started fighting in the, under the hose, so um, okay, good. Because yeah, it's just I was gonna say uh, yeah, but, I was gonna say good guy. Yeah, usually I was usually asleep within Talk about, about five minutes. Yeah. Five yeah. minutes, five minutes in with the uh, Bobby Benton blaring and uh, okay. and yeah. beautiful blue skies. It's like ah, this is so pretty, so hypnotic. <clears throat> so yeah. I would say, but yeah, it wasn't as enjoyable this time around. I agree with the, this is a once every three to five years movie for me at this point. So every four. 
yeah. <laughs> just to be precise. Yeah, if you're going for average. <laughs> I would yeah. hope for her. <laughs> so just, you're on the clock. It is now. an election year. So. If, we've, if we've accomplished anything in this podcast, you we've, get every we've election year you, you watch Blue Velvet to get ready for the. Or every World Cup. Yeah. Frank Booth for World Cup. Uh, this is. Uh, I like Blue Velvet. I've, this is. I've only seen it twice, I believe. Um, if I've seen it before, it was just in snippets. I like it. I mean, I'm not a huge uh, David Lynch. I mean, I like. Um, we've been watching a lot of of his films. Uh, we watched Mahalo Drive. I like a little bit more linear storytelling. Um, um, not that everything has to be roped up, but when, when there's a lot of, like, you know, when it gets too subjective, um, maybe it's too loose, I don't get as attached to it. Uh, but Blue Velvet, I think, as far as uh, the movies I've seen, I, I think I like the best of the movies I've seen so far, and I do like it quite a bit. I haven't seen Elephant Man, I want to see that. Wild and Heart, um, I didn't get through that. Tony watched that all the way through. Uh, although we did watch Raising Arizona, which I think is a much better film of Nicolas Cage at that time. Um, much more Coen Brothers. But uh, I think the peak Lynch is the first season of Twin Peaks that I've seen. I think that's like as good as, I mean, that's really good. Like the um, style is just incredible. He's got everything down. He's got the, the quirkiness, the humor, the, the mystery, the, the absurdity. It just all kind of fits together and there's a coherent story mm-hmm. and the characters are... And I think he probably works better, you know, in a uh, um, a long form mm-hmm. storytelling because he can take his time. You know, he doesn't have to rush, but yeah. he can still take his story. Um, but yeah, I like I, I like Dennis Hopper's performance, Dean Stockwell, Kyle MacLachlan is just I think he's everything I've seen Kyle MacLachlan in, he's been great. I haven't seen him. Not even we watched. <laughs> I don't know. Did you see Showgirls? Because I've seen yeah. Showgirls. Showgirls. Is he bad in that? Yes. Okay. Yes, he's Terrible. actually bad in Showgirls. He's actually bad. Yeah. Uh, but in all fairness, Showgirls is bad. So yeah. Showgirls, is everyone bad. is. Everyone's bad. Yeah, that was all. That was all the director. Elizabeth Berkeley, enough said, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, not her fault. That director. <laughs> really who's, who, who, who directed that? Um, oh, geez, Verhoeven. Verhoeven. Verhoeven ruined her career. Yeah. Ruined her yeah. career. I enjoyed him not... in, the, in the Flintstones movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's the, right. As the uh, business guy, he was enjoyable. Though. Yeah. He had great chemistry with John Goodman. That's <laughs> for I like him on Portlandia as the mayor. Right? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And Mike Nesbitt plays his dad, and that's that's a big thing for me as a monkey. <laughs> that's fan, awesome. So. You know. Well, he's from uh, Washington, which yeah. is where Tim Briggs is kind of set, and then Portland, yeah, so he fits that aesthetic really well. Yeah, he does. Um, I, uh, before uh, I saw it in the theaters back in, in the spring, like, uh, I always really admired and liked Blue Velvet. Like, I'm a casual Lynch fan. Like, I'm not somebody that's going to go out and see everything he directs, but if there's something that seems interesting, I'll definitely check it out, you know. And I think I, I definitely veer towards... The David Lynch of Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive, I think, is a similar. Yes, vibe. I forgot to mention and that. That's yeah. that's the Lynch I, I seem to be drawn to. And after I saw it in um, just in a, in, a, in a vacuum, Blue Velvet just as a movie by itself. Um, having seen it in the spring, I had a different reaction than a lot of people, which is it elevated it for me to maybe the top half of my favorite films list. Like I just love the visual style. Frank Booth is a character that I'm always drawn to. I love supervillains. Batman villains, Jack Torrance in The Shining, 
Um, Alex so that's your dark orange. side. Yeah, I guess I, I like really the plorable people in movies. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, but I it's it's not it's not so much their actions as much as the performance and the behavior is so exaggerated and charismatic that I'm always drawn. Like James Cagney, I think was the 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 the, uh, the originator of this type of performance of this over the top, not over the top, but a skilled over the top performance. He would like Roland Palmer. And Twin Peaks. Yeah. Probably. I probably would, yes. Um, but Cagney, I think, kind of originated that kind of style of, of, of cinematic villainy, you know, what, what we kind of draw from, at least what I'm drawn from. And uh, I think Copper kind of channels that here with Frank Booth. I think Frank Booth is an amazing creation. Mm-hmm. But I also think, like, uh, Rosalini is, is haunting in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, you just, you, you can't take those images of her out of your mind. Dean Stockwell, like Scott said, mm-hmm. is just fantastic in that that cameo, and I think Lago- you know, Laura Dern and Kyle MacLachlan are, are terrific, yeah. and it, it is a beautiful movie to look at. It's beautifully mm-hmm. shot. It's like Kubrick. It's like every scene looks perfectly right. detailed, perfectly realized. It seems like his vision is complete in this film. Like he even took a pay cut, I think, to make this just to he make did. sure it would get made, and it is mm-hmm. it is stunning. You know, I veer more towards the Coen brothers, I guess, when it comes to quirky yeah. 80s filmmakers. Yeah. That's my, they're my, among my favorite filmmakers ever, and they, they're kind of contemporaries. But I think, you know, Lynch is certainly a, a giant in cinema, and he's a giant in pop culture, and I don't think he's going away anytime soon. Like, I like Lynch better than Kubrick because almost everything Kubrick does feels like it's clinical and antiseptic and uh, dissecting everything instead of. I or, mean, there's a lot more emotion going on in a Lynch product. Or that it's maybe like for the masses, where I feel like Lynch is a little bit more. Um, well, I wouldn't. I would. I wouldn't say Kubrick's for the masses. No, no, no. no. I don't yeah. mean Kubrick's for the masses. I mean Lynch is not a person that isn't. Yeah. He's not for the masses. No, I don't think he either does of them. Things like. <laughs> I don't think either of them are making sound, sound of music anytime soon. Right. You know? Oh, yeah. no. I don't think yeah. that would be an interesting movie. That would be. I Especially. Oh. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Stanley Kubrick's not making any more movies. I'm not. Uh, I could yeah, be wrong. You're, you could be. I could be wrong. You could be wrong. <laughs> you may be onto something there, Phil. Uh, um, you haven't well, seen AI. <laughs> <laughs> AI. Yeah. Anybody, oh who can, anybody who can make a Spielberg not make a wondrous and passionate movie based on his ideas that tells you a lot about Kubrick yeah I got a this is a funny story about AI like three or four years ago Sean sent me a test I think I don't know what it was but the text said oh uh, people are reevaluating AI as a classic artificial <laughs> intelligence I read this article and it's like, oh, it looks like it's, it's gone up in, in the rankings with people and Scott goes oh that's interesting <laughs> We ended the conversation at that, but um, that's a funny. Uh, it was. It was a. It's funny, a good observation. Uh, Wasn't Will Smith in that? No, that was Haley Joel Osment. Jude Law. Oh, Jude really good okay. in that. Yeah, he's excellent in that. Oh, really I know. Awesome. I'm thinking of that other movie with Will Smith. I am something or whatever. Oh, I, I robot. That's it. So I always end the podcast with talking about uh, the best way to uh, experience a film outside of an actual theater is on Blu-ray, you know, and Blue Velvet is on Blu-ray and it looks pristine. It was released in 2011. Oh, it's good. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous looking, as as we can attest. And the the aforementioned documentary that Tony was talking about is on this, and it Mm -hmm. is terrific. Just going through, just just watching a uh, the anatomy of a film type of documentary. This is as good as you're going to find. You know, just all the details. About. And it's nice too because it has interviews with the cast members. Yeah. So it's always refreshing to hear things from their perspective. 
I mean, you're getting Dennis Hopper, yeah. who's, who's passed away, and he's on there talking about Frank Booth, and you have Isabella Rossellini going yeah, into detail. Yeah, and Laura Dern and Kyle McLaughlin. I mean, they're all on there. David Lynch. It's just fun. You know, it kind of helps you get inside that world. They also have deleted scenes, which I haven't checked yes. out, but I've heard they're amazing. Yeah. So Yeah, there's stills that they put together. I guess there's... This the movie footage. was originally four hours long, and they, they made them cut it to two hours, but they lost all that footage, but they had these still frames, and the deleted scenes are just still frames. It's really, really neat, with music. Yeah. yeah, that's mm-hmm. how they did them, that we saw. Because that's all they had. Yeah. They just had images, so they tried to recreate some of the scenes with the images so you don't hear any dialogue. But I guess there's a scene of Kyle in at college and stuff, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was also that there was a whole subplot about him being at school and yeah. Yeah. totally excised. Well, two hours is this movie's almost two hours. It's two exactly. hours exactly. Yeah. And then if you add another two hours, that's a whole that's other four movie. Hours. That's, yeah, yeah. Right. And that's, that's too much. That is it's another too much. Movie. Yeah. 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 If a racer head was four hours, <laughs> if a racer head was four hours, it'd be hateful eight. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino. Quentin, I believe my old press Tarantino. Oh, Quentin Tarantino did. When you watch this movie, they a lot of the Frank Booth like crew is very Tarantino esque for some reason to me. Like even quirkier. They remind me of the weasels from Roger Rabbit. Actually, the way they laugh. That's kind of like what Phil was saying about it being very cartoon esque. Yeah, very much so. You know, I mean, yeah, it's the the whole. I mean, they're all their own because even it makes them all their own little specific character too. Everybody looks different mm-hmm. than the other guy, and it's all very specific. It, you know, and uh, like Jack Nance has kind of got his thing, and yeah. Brad Dorf and the other guy can't remember. Which I don't know. They never named the other guy. They never named that other guy. Nope. Um, Raymond and, and Paul. Yeah, Raymond and Paul. And so I mean, but they all kind of have their own thing, even though they're just window dressing. Yeah. And the heavy you know? set ladies that are just oddly yeah sitting and in that room or yeah. dancing on top of a charger. Yeah. How about yeah. the guys that were like dead that were standing in that room at the end? Where oh, that's, that's creepy. A, that's, that's the so yellow man and uh, and Don. Yeah, <laughs> the husband. Yeah. yeah, are they dead? Are they? Yeah, they're like, dead. Yeah, they're dead. Yeah, they're but dead. But that's they, the thing. Like, in reality, that guy's not going to be standing there. If you're dead, you're going to fall away. <laughs> right. Well, I remember the was But a great snapshot. That's one of my favorite visuals of that whole movie. Yeah. When he walks into that house. When he walks in. It's just, I mean, it's yeah. it, it, a little bit, you know, that dark imagery and just, uh, just a little piece of but it's beautiful. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's disturbing and it's a little bit gross, but it's also really, really beautiful. Yeah, you know? It's um, very depraved. Another yeah. disturbing Worst scene. Worst party ever. <laughs> another disturbing scene that I wanted to touch base on uh, was with the Yellow Man uh, is when... Uh, Jeffrey's playing that exterminator in Dorothy's apartment, oh, yeah. and the Yellowman just creeps in, and the the, the look he gives yeah. him is yeah. straight out of Hitchcock, where it's like, oh shit, <laughs> we're in right. a deep, we're in deep shit right now. Right, this guy's eyeing him. It just it, <coughs> it says nothing. It says everything at the same time. Yeah, a lot of red herrings in this movie, as far as that's yeah. concerned, because yeah. you keep thinking there's going to be something that Jeffrey's going to get somehow sold out to somebody. You know, probably Frank by the Yellow Man never does. Right. You know. You know what's funny though this this as we're ending the podcast this movie has a happy ending. You describe it. It yeah, does. It does. Right. This movie has a but very happy ending. A lot of yeah. David Lynch's films do have happy endings. Uh, Wild at Heart mm-hmm. ends up with a happy ending. Eraserhead. Eraserhead. Well, I mean seriously. <laughs> 
I think we all it wanted. Ends. I think we all wanted the book. Yeah, it was happy because yeah. it ended. I was about to say that's about the happiest ending you can have for something like that, right? Is, is Eraserhead related to Jeff Goldblum's Fly by any chance? Oh, it's very similar. <laughs> Dune, Dune has a happy ending. I mean, yeah. you know, there's uh, you know, there's a lot of his movies. What, what that, the, the kid runs up to Isabel Rosalini with that they yeah. their hat on. Mm-hmm. There's the whole parable about the robins and yeah. eating the yeah. e- destroying the evil and releasing the love yeah. and yeah. you yeah. see the, well, the little just, puppet robin eating the bug uh-huh. well it's this whole thing of I think of like okay everybody's everything's fine yeah go back to bed you don't have to worry about anything yeah. I think it was just kind of a little wink to the go you know this is what they want you to believe and we're just gonna go ahead and end it this way you know which of course we all know that's not how it really yeah. is but you know right. I, I do think uh, uh, Dorothy Vance, Valance, 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 Valance. <laughs> got it. Uh, she it does seems like she's free of Frank Booth and all that. Right. Yeah. Well, it's just kind of funny how like nobody seems to be suffering any kind of psychological damage from everything that's happened. <laughs> I'm sure she <laughs> you know, is, but and even Dorothy okay. and Jeffrey especially, they and seem to be the, good. I'm okay now, Jeffrey. <laughs> yeah. Good to see. Good to see you, Dad. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Because once again, they're just, they're all kidding themselves. Again, they're all back to right. they're being on the surface what they really aren't. But that's, that's what they you know want. That's very uh, Twin Peaks ish. It's like everything's good here. You know, that's kind of yeah, like, really it is. One thing I will say, I love David Lynch's um, character names. I just think he comes up with the best character names. <laughs> Throwing yeah. that out there. Yeah, the very old school style. Yes, and they're Dorothy very catchy. Valance, Dorothy Valance, yeah. and even like Agent Cooper, Audrey Horn. I just think he has great names. They all, they all reek of maple syrup. Like they all seem like they should be in Absolutely. the woods, yeah. you know. Yes. Ben and Jerry Horn. Laura yeah, Palmer, yeah. you know, like <laughs> Yeah. Well, I wanna th- <laughs> I wanna thank uh, Brendan and Phil for joining us today. That was an awesome Yes, thank you so much, guys. Well thank you for having us Absolutely, thank you so much. Thanks for bringing the pass. Yes, yeah, and the Heineken. We and did Heineken, Heineken and Pabst. No and, Budweiser. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any King shows coming up individually or together. Uh, or? I don't know. I got some. I don't know what the dates are in any of them. Improv uh, Wars in two weeks. Improv Wars two weeks was, well, Saturday potluck, something along those lines. Um, uh, Grandview Fringe Fest, I will be, uh, well, actually with, uh, with yeah. Scott. Uh, me, Scott, John Kuhn. Uh, Steve Emerson, Markel Jr., and Joe Teeters. We will be doing a, uh, a Grandmaster set, an improv set. Um, there's the Geezers of Improv are coming up at Mad Lab. Uh, there might be some other things. I have no idea. It's a fun show. Yeah. yeah. We, we might be doing something at the French Fest, too. I know yeah. Joe had talked about it, but who knows? Right. <laughs> we'll knows? put that out there for the public to decide. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And uh, uh, we have a few projects of our own. Scott, of course, not only is he doing uh, the French Fest, I think he's also performing the Improv Wars. Tony, the ovarian cancer projects are coming up soon. Yes, we have our big 5K on Sunday, September 18th. It's Strides for Hope. Uh, We are um, promoting that for ovarian cancer. So if anybody wants to come out to that, we'd love to have you. Uh, Go to our website, www.ocao.org. There's also a big fundraiser in August. For That's that, right. At Broad Wars. That's right. It's going to be at CD1025 on Thursday night, August 25th. 
We're going to be doing an Improv Wars fundraiser, so everybody here at the table with me is probably going to be there and, and or performing. Mm -hmm. But all the proceeds raised are going to the Ovarian Cancer Alliance of Ohio, so we'd love to have your support. If you want to come out and meet us, we'd love <laughs> to meet yeah. you, the listeners, and you know, yeah. that'd be great. And I have a show I'm directing. It's going to be on stage at the Wild Goose Creative on August 12th, on Friday, August 12th. Mm -hmm. uh, it's presented by Columbus Unscripted. It's called The Putts. Scott is the star, and Tony's in there along with a few other actors such as Josh Greenwald, um, Dwight Pig, Mark DiBerzio, Grant Walters, and uh, David Haig. So, really talented awesome. cast. I'm really looking okay. forward to seeing it. It's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm the Dorothy yeah. Valens. And I will also I will be in the next, uh, next uh, uh, TBD. Uh, improvised oh, musical okay. yeah. uh, at uh, Backstage Bistro at Shadowbox Theater. That is July... I want to say 18th. Am That's I right about up. that? Next weekend. July Next weekend. 8th. July 8th. 8th. July oh, wow. 8th. Okay. So I will be, yeah, so that was the other thing that I... Brendan's actually an accomplished singer. I mean, he's going to do karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do recall at my birthday party. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> and I'm not joking. I'm not, I'm not being... Uh, oh, thank Brendan you. is very good at... Uh, what was... What's the song that you did? Oh God, who knows? Yeah, it was a. It was that was like what two years ago? Yeah, almost? yeah, it was like two yeah. years ago. Your birthday party, I remember. Yeah, that was, was that was party. that was definitely two years ago. <laughs> but my birthday party. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that's you know hopefully Brendan will uh, serenade us someday. Yeah. <laughs> serenade us, side. yeah, on the improv side. Phil and I have been known to break out into songs. Yes, yes we have days. absolutely. As have Phil and I. And yes, with, absolutely. With Joe Moore, we with we, at, uh, yeah. <laughs> we were going to start our own boy band after that. I don't know. What yes, nice. I don't know either. Yeah, it's a good shout out to Joe Moore there. Too, so. <laughs> if you're listening, that's right. Well, thank you very much for everybody. Uh, thanks again for Brendan and, and uh, Phil for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. Man, I like Heineken. You like Heineken? Uh, well, I never really had Heineken before. You never had Heineken before? My dad drinks Bud. King of beers. <laughs>